The wedding ceremony took place in 1967. The Radiant Bride wore a white skirt, sheer veil, and dramatic eyeliner. Her groom wore a more conventional suit. A self-proclaimed rabbi who practiced a combination of Judaism and Christianity, which he termed Judiana, officiated the ceremony. But when newspapers across the United States reported upon the union of 20-year-old Phyllis Worley and 17-year-old Dennis St. Clair, they focused on what was missing from the ceremony, the tops. The bride, her attendants, and the groom's best man all went shirtless for an event that was billed as the nation's first topless wedding. The revealing nuptials were a publicity stunt for Papa Joe's, a popular club in Roanoke, Virginia. The bride, who performed under the name Pacific Shane, was one of the club's featured topless dancers. The ensuing attention was a publicity coup for Papa Joe's and a proclamation that adult entertainment could be openly enjoyed in the Bible Belt. Papa Joe's was the first venue in Virginia to feature topless dancing, and it was among the first clubs in the United States to offer this kind of entertainment. When topless entertainment came to Roanoke, some religious leaders and many locals condemned these activities. But Papa Joe's history is not a simple story of moral outrage in a part of the country that birthed the religious right. Its story instead reveals the ways in which sexual entertainment flourished on Southern soil. Roanoke, like other small cities, was not apart from, but rather part of, a culture that commercialized sex and displayed women's bodies in increasingly aggressive and public ways in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Topless clubs thrived in Roanoke because they tapped into national trends, and politicians and police tolerated them because they attracted tourists. Clubs, like Papa Joe's, were also segregated spaces that carefully guarded the color line, which maintained that only white men could publicly look at white women's bodies, that black men could entertain and perform for white people as musicians, but never join the audiences themselves, and that white male business owners would enjoy the lion's share of the profits generated by sex workers' labor. So long as topless dancing made money and conformed to the South's racial codes, townsfolk with power were willing to look the other way while white audiences watched the show. I'm Lauren Gutterman. And I'm Gillian Frank. Welcome to Sexing History. The topless dancers who performed on Roanoke stages were part of a long history of sexual performance in American nightlife. In the 1960s, these performances became increasingly explicit. Against the backdrop of loosening obscenity laws, nightclub owners and performers flouted decency rules to draw crowds. They wagered that the payoff from packed houses would outweigh court costs and municipal fines. In 1964, in San Francisco's North Beach neighborhood, a 26-year-old dancer named Carol Dota broke ground when she pioneered a topless dance on stage at a strip club called The Condor. Uh, can we describe your act at The Condor? Can we talk, talk about it? Well, if you'd like to. Please. Uh, what would you like to know about it? What I would like to know, what is a performance at The Condor? What did it consist of? Oh, it consisted of um, a piano a ceiling and a body <laughs> coming out of the ceiling on the piano with this wild 
rock and roll music, and it would uh, it was like an elevator. It was like going up and down on an elevator, and it would hit the stage, and I would go into um, one of my routines, uh, mostly rock and roll dancing, you know, the contemporary dances or uh, uh, a little production type of thing. But um, it certainly wasn't a challenge. Unlike other performers who covered their nipples, Dota showed her breasts and nipples in their entirety. Word of her performance traveled fast and made her into a national celebrity. As her success grew, so did Dota's breasts, which she injected with silicone to increase them in size from a 34B to a 44DD. The owners of the Condor nightclub built a 40-foot sign of Dota that depicted her giant breasts with light-up red nipples. Within a year, the Condor and Dota had inspired a host of imitators, with an estimated 40 topless dance clubs in the San Francisco area alone. San Francisco's topless performances attracted thousands of tourists from across the country. One of those tourists was George Christophus, the owner and manager of Papa Joe's in Roanoke, Virginia. As Christophus told the story, he was unimpressed by the topless go-go dancers he saw in San Francisco. He told one reporter, I went to a few of those places, and I told the guy I was with, hell, girls in Virginia got bigger tits than this. In a breast-crazed culture that fetishized size, Christophus saw an opportunity to cash in. He decided to bring topless dancing back home to Roanoke and to showcase local talent. Located between the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Alleghenies, Roanoke was fast becoming a family-friendly tourist destination in the early 1960s. City leaders had been marketing the star city of the South and the region's natural beauty to white travelers. One tourist brochure from the era declared, Roanoke boasts the best of life, a population of 100,000, distinguished colleges, a model school system, more than 125 churches of every denomination. These cars are the first to move along a newly opened section of Interstate Spur 581 into Roanoke, which instead of Peters Creek Road now goes in as far as Harshberger Road. The construction of Interstate 581 fueled tourism to Roanoke by connecting it to other cities along the eastern seaboard. Growing numbers of white tourists and businessmen regularly gathered at Roanoke's historic hotel and its conference center. Many of these establishments, as well as Roanoke's recreational spaces, remained segregated even after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 legally ended the practice. Tourism, like so much else in Roanoke, supported de facto racial segregation. New motels and hotels competed for white travelers. They did not encourage black tourism. The world-famous gospel singer Mahalia Jackson crossed the color line as one of the first black entertainers to perform at the Hotel Roanoke in 1964. But white hotel owners stopped short at welcoming black guests to their establishments. The Traveler's Green Book, a publication that helped African-American tourists navigate segregated and hostile spaces, listed only a handful of black-friendly accommodations through the 1960s. The city's newly sexually explicit nightlife venues were no exception to this trend and excluded black patrons. Roanoke's attempts to attract white tourists benefited entrepreneurs like George Christophus. Before Papa Joe's became infamous, it was a typical neighborhood bar and restaurant in a working class neighborhood. 
George Christophus, its owner, was the son of Greek parents. At 10 years old, he immigrated to the U.S. from Egypt. He grew up in Roanoke after his father got a job working for the Norfolk and Western Railway. As a young man, he worked a number of jobs in restaurants and bars, and at one point, he worked as a bootlegger running moonshine. He served for four years in the Signal Corps during World War II, before moving back to Roanoke, marrying, and starting a family. Christophus was a doting father and a loving husband, but after years of running a small grocery store, he was struggling to make ends meet. He decided to take a chance and open a bar, which would soon compete for a lion's share of the white tourists coming to town. Maria Christophus, Papa Joe's youngest daughter, described her father and his business to us. Kind of short in stature, maybe five seven, five eight, round, had beautiful silver hair, typical Greek profile. He dressed in Trousers and, I guess, what you'd call a sports shirt every day. He had a kind of a low, husky, hoarse voice. When you hear him on tape, he has a southern accent. Um, It started as like a mom-and-pop grocery store around 1947. And then he added an off-premises beer license. And then he added the bar, restaurant. Then he added on to the building and built the nightclub. And that was um, before, before the dancers. He didn't bring the dancers in right away. That was, it was just a nightclub. He had bands and dancing and beer. In the early 1960s, George Christophus threw himself into Papa Joe's, acting as manager, cook, bartender, waiter, bouncer, and promoter. He sought to draw tourists to Papa Joe's by featuring live shows. First came female belly dancers, then rock and roll bands, then strippers, and finally the topless dancers. These shows drew enthusiastic crowds. By 8.30 on a typical Saturday night, Papa Joe's was filled with white college students and 20-somethings. This younger, hipper set could be seen in their madras tops and Bermuda shorts performing the latest dances like the dog and the monkey. As the night went on and the strippers took to the stage, the crowd changed and the bar filled with middle-aged white men in business attire. Years later, patrons and performers still have vivid memories of Papa Joe's and speak fondly about its owner, George Christophus. Here's Drake Covey, whose band regularly played at Papa Joe's in the 1960s. I can see it almost like it was yesterday, actually. Um, There was a... uh fairly good sized parking lot. Uh, the club wasn't exceptionally large, but, um, they had like a, a kitchen area that we really didn't go in. They had, um, a bandstand that was over to the left when you walked in the main door, which is where we played and, um, and a bar over to the right and then seats, you know, tables around a, a sort of a typical nightclub look. And, um, I would say it smelled a little dingy and probably a little bit like beer, uh, which at the time, uh, probably all of, all of our band drank beer at that time. So, you know, at 14 and 15, you know, we might have a few beers and, and, but the club, uh, the other part of the club, there wasn't upstairs. I recall because the, the dancers, uh, 
would would have dressing rooms up there and stuff and and we were invited up there some to have a little bit of extracurricular activity but you know not excessive or anything like that but uh we got to know some of the strippers some of the go-go dancers and that kind of stuff and uh, i'm sure they thought of us as as kids which we were <laughs> they're probably thinking what the hell is your mother letting you out <laughs> out of out of the door for to do this but uh but we had some we had some nice relationships uh you know with 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 the women that worked there they were always nice to us and and joe christmas was always really nice to us let's go boys here's the little lady we've all been waiting for maestro if you please papa joe's had a regular rotation of white female performers Most of them came from out of state and made Papa Joe's one of their stops on a national circuit of strip clubs. These women danced under stage names like Choo Choo and Little Darlin. During their acts, they stripped down to tiny glittered bra tops or pasties and g-strings. One dancer by the name of Lady Godiva created a sensation when she brought a horse on stage to help her undress. And nationally famous strippers like Valerie Valjean even dropped by Papa Joe's. In 1964, a journalist writing for the Roanoke Times described a typical act featuring Lisa Duran. In the journalist's words, the five-foot-two, not-so-buxom blonde took three numbers, one slow, two fast, to disrobe from a flaming red evening gown to red pasties and a g-string. Duran had started stripping the previous year after discovering she could triple her salary. As far as she was concerned, Papa Joe's was an ideal gig Compared to Baltimore shows, which she described as the roughest there are, a night at Papa Joe's was like a church recital. By 1967, Papa Joe's shifted to topless dancers, called go-go girls, in part to save money. The out-of-town strippers who traveled from Washington or Baltimore commanded a hefty $200 a week. However, the go-go girls were local performers, like Phyllis Worley, a high school dropout who began dancing while still in her teens. These go-go dancers, like the strippers, usually performed because the money was better than other forms of sex work or menial labor. One Virginia newspaper noted that although go-go girls made less than strippers, they still command salaries which would be the envy of many secretaries and career girls. While some performers may have turned to stripping or topless dancing because of the pleasure and attention it provided, Most of the topless dancers were working-class women just trying to make ends meet. Jimmy Downing was a musician who played in bands that performed at Papa Joe's. They were, you know, pretty girls, uh, rather thin. Um, Their backgrounds were, I wouldn't think the, uh, I wouldn't use the term redneck, but uh, they were of the lower profile and, um, um, they would wear G-strings and pasties, and we used to call them tasties. Here's Maria Christophus. He had a stripper whose stage name was Lady Godiva, and she had a Palomino horse, and the horse was part of her act and undressed her. You have to assume a lot in that, that she had tied, you know, her clothing was tied onto her, and he undid the bows. She came to our house. She brought the horse to our house for my brother's birthday party. I remember the horse. She had trained the horse to count. 
And so she, when she asked the horse how old my brother was, he took his hoof and scraped it on the sidewalk for ever how old my brother was at the time. I don't remember what it was. The dancers, two of them, there were apartments on the top floor of the building, and two of them had one of those apartments. And when I would go down there on the weekends during the day to spend the day with Daddy, they would take me upstairs. They were my babysitters. They would take me upstairs and do girly stuff, you know, fix my hair, put makeup on me. We would go downtown. We would go shopping. They would, you know, play games with me. As the shows at Papa Joe's became more sexually risque, the audiences grew. Suddenly, hundreds of patrons were lining up to pay a $1.50 cover charge to see the shows. One index of the booming business was beer sales. According to family lore, Papa Joe's held the state record for draft beer sales and went through as many as 18 kegs on a busy weekend. But nightlife is a competitive business, and in Roanoke, other bars sought to capture their share of dollars from locals and tourists alike. Papa Joe's chief rival was Joe and Johnny's, which also featured exotic entertainment and was known for having cheaper beer than Papa Joe's. Christophus constantly had to look for ways to outdo his competition and to keep patrons coming back. When Joe and Johnny's featured what they called the world's largest stripper, Christophus brought in the world's smallest. Novelty became the name of the game. On the busiest nights of Papa Joe's, locals, college students, and traveling businessmen mingled while bands played and go-go girls danced. Papa Joe's was also a go-to destination for professional football players who trekked to Roanoke annually to visit the bar. According to Maria Christophus, at its height, Southeast Roanoke was commonly known as Papa Joe's country. As things progressed and it became a, um, a topless bar, he was a famous person. He was known Everybody in Roanoke at least knew him. Everybody, people would come from out of town just to come and see what he was doing, what was going on down there. Um, they, you know, they'd stay an extra day in Roanoke and spend money. He had at one time he had a sign on the side of his building that said, "Papa Joe, the friendly Greek, the place that made Roanoke famous." Topless dancing at Papa Joe's took place against the backdrop of a racially segregated city. And Roanoke's topless clubs were typical of Southern nightlife during the civil rights era. Across the region, the white owners of entertainment venues, from movie theaters to bars, resisted legal and social pressure to integrate in the 1960s. Black performers could appear before white audiences. But when it came to the dangerous alchemy of sex and race in this Southern city, Papa Joe's and other clubs maintained a social order that insisted that only white men were allowed to look at white women's bodies. Tom Davis, whose uncle owned a rival bar, Joe and Johnny's, remembers how race shaped Roanoke's neighborhoods and nightlife. Roanoke was your typical southern segregated city. Now, I was born in 1948, the last month of 1948. So I came to uh, 
fruition, I guess, in the late 50s, 60s. But it was a southern segregated town. And I was very conscious of it because when my grandparents had owned all of this, uh, it was a poor white section. But it gradually was taken over by blacks as a poor blacks neighborhood. And even that, even with that, it was still, during the 50s, a very safe neighborhood, a very crime-free neighborhood. Nightclub owners worried that racial integration would hurt their businesses, and they enforced the color line. The Roanoke Star covered Papa Joe's resistance to integration in 1964, stating that two black men got into an argument about civil rights with Papa Joe and lost. The article implied that Papa Joe and his employees had run the men off. Here's Maria Christophus, Joe's daughter. Two black men showed up at the door, and my father turned them away. And then there was a big ruckus over that, I guess you would call it. And um, they were screaming civil rights, and Daddy was saying, I have the right to let in whoever I want to or turn away whoever I want to, and eventually it got resolved. The owners of Joe and Johnny's tried a different tactic to maintain segregation. They became a key club, which is to say, a private members-only bar, in order to ensure that only white customers could be admitted. Here's Tom Davis. We had this uh, stripper club, which was doing tremendous business, and it was basically uh, told that we had to integrate. And my uncles didn't want to integrate because they feared it would take their customers away from them. So they turned it into, in theory, a private club. They sold these tokens that you put on your keychain to all their customers for a dollar, which it was a symbol of being a member of the club. And when anyone of color came to the club to try to get in, they were asked if they were members. And, of course, they weren't because they had never been sold as token. And so they were told they couldn't enter. Different businesses, uh, restaurants, clubs, stuff, did things to avoid having to integrate. And my uncles were no exception to that. Roanoke's nightlife literally staged Jim Crow by creating social distance especially when it came to dictating who could and could not watch public sexual performances. The color line didn't mean the outright exclusion of black people. Rather, it dictated who could look at white female bodies in public and how. At Papa Joe's and at Joe and Johnny's, black men regularly performed as musicians. Though they were physically closer to the dancers than many members of the audience, their role as performers mattered so long as they were on stage and employees and not in the crowd as members of the audience, the racial rules in Virginia held firm. That Christophus went along with, rather than challenged racial segregation, probably helped his club survive a steady stream of public criticism about its sexual fare. Christophus's many defenders depicted him as a good-natured, enterprising immigrant who brought the sexual revolution to Virginia. To his family and friends, he was beloved, and known for being loyal, generous, and kind. Some locals, however, took a dim view of the debauchery he promoted at his bar. 
they cast Christophus as a mobster who was corrupting local youth and perverting the city's morals. Roanoke residents first protested against Papa Joe's in 1964 when the club began featuring strippers. At a city council hearing, neighbors spent 90 minutes complaining about the noise, sex, and violence his bar generated. Do you think much was accomplished at yesterday's council meeting dealing with this? Absolutely, yes. I think the more you add those things and let people know what's going on in America, and we are not going to keep putting up with things like that to youth that are coming along. It's really, I think, a disgrace. A contingent of women, representing a nearby Baptist church, led the charge and demanded that the bar be closed. One of them quipped that although a G-string is the largest on a violin, that's not much clothing for a woman. For these guardians of public decency, the bar was a den of debauchery. Decent people don't go to that place. Respectable people don't go to that place. And these men told such horrible tales about these low-down, sorry Jezebels. Mayor, I'd like to say that today, that when men go out and commit crime, well, they're ready to jail them. And could you tell me that men would go to, were they and get intoxicated with alcohol, and then see necklace women, topless women, and then they get that lust in them, and then they come out, go out and commit crimes such as adultery, in which we know if our city allows such things as going in this, and we're supposed to be a Christian nation, we do know that rape and murder is going to increase. And I think that if we should, as a Christian nation, and preachers today, the Bible said that he shall make you as bold as a lion. I think that we should cry out against sin and not and fight this thing because we know that this thing comes from the bodily pits of hell. I smell smoke, smoke, fire, and brimstone, that old devil. Neighbors repeatedly accused Christophus of providing beer to underage boys who worked for him, and they claimed that the bar attracted prostitutes who solicited in the area. One woman who'd lived next door to Papa Joe's before moving away claimed she had observed sex relations under her bedroom window and panties hanging in the trees in the mornings. Others testified about the violence. One neighbor told city councilors that she knew of a man whose leg and false teeth had been broken at the club and of a woman who had been hit over the head there. A fight broke out and all during the fight, the organ player just kept playing. Just kept playing music all during the fight. That was that was one of his favorites. Another one was another band was playing down there. And back then, even the bands dressed up. They wore suits. Um, this particular guy had on a white suit. And a big fight broke out. And by the time... The fight was over. The suit was white and red from all the blood. Um, it was it was never anything big. I guess some of his some probably some of his best stories weren't for small ears. Local authorities were content to turn a blind eye to Papa Joe's. Police made only three arrests between July and August of 1964 despite persistent complaints from neighbors, and Joe Christophus publicly insisted that he had never been charged with selling beer to a minor, that he closed at 12.30 after a 15-minute midnight strip show, and that all the teens on his staff had work permits and cards. If there ever was a woman with immoral purposes in his place, he declared, I don't know nothing about it. 
Christophus briefly lost his liquor license in 1965 because of a lewd dance performed by a stripper with a customer and because he sold alcohol to a minor. Public opposition to Papa Joe's peaked in January of 1967. After years of featuring strippers and burlesque acts, Christophus pushed the envelope even further when Papa Joe's became the first bar in the state to feature topless go-go dancers. The strippers was getting old and we saw so much publicized on topless go-go's and we decided to bring them in and try them. Anybody else in Virginia done this yet? Not yet. These topless go-go dancers typically wore tall patent leather go-go boots and performed the popular dances of the day, like the swim, the shimmy, and the twist. At a public hearing, numerous residents complained about the club and demanded that Roanoke's police enforce Virginia's laws against lewd and obscene performances. City council hearings became the venue for these debates to play out. The loudest religious voices protesting Papa Joe's were Southern Baptists, who likened Roanoke to Sodom and Gomorrah. They labeled Papa Joe's dancers low-down Jezebels and cheered when a speaker said that the mayor needed to go to Sunday school. One final question we'd like to ask Mayor Dillard. Would he like for his daughter or his wife to be a topless waitress? Think it over, Mr. Mayor. I would like to suggest that we, that the Roanoke form a school for Mayor Dillard, a Sunday school. One protester testified that he was against not only topless dancing, but all dancing, because a dancing girl had caused the beheading of John the Baptist. Another suggested the council should replace a star edifice on a nearby mountain symbolizing Roanoke's reputation as the star city of the South with a statue of Satan. At one city council meeting, the protesters became so rowdy the mayor threatened to have police throw them out. These conservative voices loudly maintained that the desirable progress of Roanoke hinged upon commercial growth and also upon the upholding of moral and spiritual standards to keep Roanoke a clean and family-oriented city. I don't believe a nice Christian lady will hang around places like that. I don't believe a gentleman will hang around it. Opponents of topless dancing did not have the only or even the final word on sexual expression and what counted as decent or indecent. A small contingent of mainline Protestant religious leaders joined with other citizens, not to protest Papa Joe's, but to object to the government's regulation of sexual morality. One minister began the hearings by praying for government by reason rather than by pressure groups. His comments drew a loud jeer. At the very time when the city manager has asked guidance of the Commonwealth Attorney on the legality of the situation involved, we see pressure tactics of the worst sort. I'm not speaking on the morality of the situation involved. I don't think I'm qualified, as I'm sure a lot of you are not. I do say that I have confidence in our laws. We are a nation of laws, a state of laws, a city of laws, and not whims based on emotional appeal. These liberal religious voices represented a consensus that the state had no business regulating sexual activities involving consenting adults. In this spirit, Reverend David Rogers, the president of the Roanoke Ministers Conference, testified that sexual morality could and should not be legislated. 
he encouraged city councillors and his fellow citizens to focus on supporting more urgent matters, racial integration, and fighting poverty. But this is only a symptom or result of immorality that has existed in our community for years, and we've done little or nothing about it. Today, we must confess our guilt as a community in letting an atmosphere develop so that this comes as a result. The dancers at Papa Joe's also defended their performances along these lines. Joyce Wheeler, who danced under the name Susie Southern, denied being nude while dancing. She wore nipple-covering pasties and a G-string, and called on the city's leaders to clean up other problems before attacking her livelihood. Phyllis Worley pointed out that she'd been raised Christian and noted that she was a worker who got paid for doing her job. I believe in God. I believe in everything that's been said today. But why should people condemn me for something they haven't seen and they don't know what happened? The main point here is uh, whether or not the people of Roanoke have enough faith in ourselves and the other people of Roanoke to judge for ourselves what is uh, uh, sinful or bad or uh, going to be a... uh, bad influence on the people of Roanoke, I can't see that just this little thing is going to uh, bring about a complete debacle in the city. For these performers, the moral urgency of making a decent living took precedence. George Christophus, meanwhile, seized upon a popular language of free choice and sexual privacy that was common to a number of obscenity debates in the 1960s. Breasts were not being thrust in the faces of unwilling citizens, he argued. Instead, only those who wanted to observe these performances needed to attend. Echoing legal arguments for greater sexual civil liberties that were popular at the time, Christophus suggested that consenting adults had a right to enjoy the sexual performances on stage at his club. I, I believe in what I'm doing. I'm not doing anything against the law. I'm not forcing anyone to come in my place. I charge admission, and everybody's welcome to come in my place. And everybody in here that hasn't been in my place has formed an opinion of their own. Now, how many people in there have been down there and saw this case? How can you make an opinion of anything you haven't seen? In a battle between conservative censors and Papa Joe's supporters, Christophus won. Following the hearing, the city conducted an investigation of the moral climate at Papa Joe's. The team concluded that entertainment at Papa Joe's was not obscene, City manager Arthur Owens told reporters, I had a great time. I'm going back. Roanoke's mayor, Benton Dillard, said Papa Joe's dancers were good for city tourism. Some speculated that Papa Joe's was also good for the pocketbooks of local police and politicians. The support of local officials emboldened Christophus, who continued to offer risque performances and to entertain people from across the region. The mayor and the chief of police went down there when all this first started and deemed it okay and he worked with them and and there were a set of rules but I don't know what those rules were. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say the major players, the mayors, city manager, chief of police, fire chief, I, if I had to guess, I'd say they were all in his pocket. But I don't know that for sure. A few months after the investigation of Papa Joe's, Christophus hosted what was billed as the nation's first topless wedding, which we describe at the opening of this episode. This publicity stunt was perhaps designed to annoy his religious opponents. But for Papa Joe, the wedding was also a publicity coup, widely advertising his club 
and the entertainment he offered. Despite an unprecedented degree of publicity, Papa Joe's was on its last legs. Six months after Dennis St. Clair married local dancer Phyllis Worley at the club, Dennis died after being shot through the stomach in the club's entryway. Police declared his death a suicide, but many, including his bride, believed it was a murder. Soon after, government officials took away Christophus's liquor license and charged him with violating a Virginia labor law when a 17-year-old girl who'd been working as a dancer illegally at his club tried to end her life by overdosing on pills. After she was taken to the hospital, police discovered she was an underage runaway. These incidents dovetailed with broader cultural shifts that made Papa Joe's less and less relevant. The novelty of seeing locals dance topless quickly wore off, and by the end of the decade, Roanokers could consume any number of sexual performances in rival clubs or in adult movie theaters that were springing up around town. In January 1969, Christophus tried to rebrand his business and renamed Papa Joe's the Silver Saddle. This time, the club featured a new gimmick, strippers disrobing to country music. Patrons were not impressed. The Silver Saddle flopped as adult fare in and around Roanoke grew. Financial setbacks and legal troubles ultimately ended Christophus' run as a nightclub owner. In April of 1969, the IRS claimed that Christophus owed more than $350,000 in back taxes, and they padlocked the doors to Papa Joe's. Christophus didn't have the money to pay the tax bill, and the IRS seized his home and his cars. They couldn't seize the building that had once been Papa Joe's because another member of Christophus' family owned it. In December of that same year, Christophus was sentenced to a month in jail for attacking a customer with a baseball bat. These events finally shuttered the place that made Roanoke famous. During the 1970s, Christophus shifted gears. He ran a small business that restored old restaurant supplies. It's not so bad, he told a reporter. I can make a living at this business. The women who danced at Papa Joe's did not generally fare as well. Phyllis Worley, one of the bar's most popular dancers who'd briefly achieved fame for her part in the nation's first topless wedding, became a grandmother in her 30s. In an interview decades after her dancing days, she insisted that she had no regrets about her career. Still, she was frustrated that she could never seem to shake her past and was living under a new name. Asked if she'd learned any lessons from her days as a stripper, she told a reporter, young girls should always sit down and try to think how what they want to do is going to affect the rest of their lives. Two other former dancers made the local news when they applied for jobs as city trash collectors. Although the women were eager to take on the work, reporters poked fun at their applications and referred to them by their stage names, Miss Love and Sam the Nevada Blonde. Miss Lynn, what is your reason for wanting to become a sanitation worker? Well, it's the... It's the money more than anything else. I'd be making better money there than most anywhere else on a woman's salary. And this work rather hard and difficult for a yes. woman? Yes. Yes, I've been told. We've been warned what we have to do. Are there any drawbacks to being a go-go girl? Yes. What are they? I think it's the name that goes with it. It's it's just the name that uh, is, it's a... 
I don't know, just the, the name that's attached to you with the title of a government. Economics then it forced you into strip. Yes, it is. Another former stripper at Papa Joe's, Tella Jean Roberts, was working as a truck driver in the 1970s when she was in her 40s. Logging about 5,000 miles a week driving between Miami and Boston, she still failed to earn the $300 a week she once had as a dancer. But the story of topless dancing in Roanoke doesn't end there. In 1990, six years after Christophus died, Roanoke City Council was eager to distance the city from its seedy past. Council members voted without debate or discussion to ban topless dancing. The ban did not apply to respectable art or what they called dramatic works with literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Rather, it was limited to shows that displayed nudity as a sales device for commercial purposes. In other words, businesses like Papa Joe's. This ban still stands, and today... It is a class one misdemeanor in Roanoke to voluntarily and intentionally appear in a state of nudity in a public place. This coda to Papa Joe's story reminds us that historical change does not move in just one direction, and that battles over sex and obscenity are never settled for good. In the 1960s, when topless dancing served city leaders' desire to draw tourists and media attention, elected officials endorsed it. When these performances no longer brought in revenue, they disavowed it. While the topless dancing craze came and went in Roanoke, city's leaders' emphasis on the bottom line has remained a constant. Today, when people reminisce about Papa Joe's, as a series of articles in local papers in Virginia recently did, they recall the club through a nostalgic lens in which topless dancing is a symbol of sexual freedom and Christophus is an innovator and revolutionary. But that's not the only way of understanding this story. Papa Joe's white-only audiences, black musicians, and cash-strapped dancers were a product of long-standing cultural norms and structures of power in Roanoke, as in the nation, not a departure from them. And while the topless dancing craze marked a new chapter of sexualized entertainment for white men in the 1960s, it was hardly revolutionary. For a brief moment, Christophus and some of his employees cashed in on the topless trend. But the club brought liberation to none of them. Sexing History is written and produced by Gillian Frank and me, Lauren Gutterman. Our senior producer is Sunia Liganawi. Rebecca Davis is our story editor and producer. Our assistant producer is Mallory Zemanski. Stephen Colebrook and Carolyn Asdell also contributed research to this episode. To see our liner notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes, please visit our website at www.sexinghistory.com. This episode of Sexing History was supported with funding from the America's Center Centro de las Americas at the University of Virginia. Special thanks to Drake Covey, Jimmy Downing, and Maria Christophis for taking time to talk with us. Thank you also to Maria for sharing her personal archives. From all of us at Sexing History, thanks for listening. <laughs>